My life, literally, I had a rummage sale. My life, my life emptied out over a very rapid period of time and turned in a whole new direction where I gave up the things that I thought mattered to find the stuff that really did matter. Hello, my name is Barney and welcome to Moments of Clarity. Today I'm speaking to Sherry Maddock. Sherry is a gardener and placemaker, and more recently founder and director of Planted Places, a social enterprise in the centre of Melbourne which exists to cultivate relationships between people, plants and place. She is also the Neighbourhood Engagement Coordinator at Collins Street Baptist Church. I'm really excited today to bring you episode 10 of Moments of Clarity, and I'm absolutely thrilled that Sherry was able to join me for this special episode. Sherry is undoubtedly one of the most inspiring people I've ever had the pleasure of talking to. Her insights upon so many aspects of life, including identity, purpose, direction and meaning, have truly had a transformative effect on me, and you'll no doubt hear this come through in our conversation. Sherry and I discuss gardening, relationships, charity, travel, growing up in the US South, placemaking, asylum seekers, spirituality, well-being, philosophy and so much more. If you are interested in the work that Sherry does, please follow the links in the show notes. As always, if you like the podcast, please subscribe, share and leave a review. I really would love to hear your feedback, so send me a message on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, or send an email. Sherry and I actually spoke over two sittings, which I explained during the second half of the podcast. As always in the age of COVID, the sound is not perfect, but I reckon the conversation is pretty close. So without further delay, I bring you Sherry Maddock. Hello, Sherry. Welcome to Moments of Clarity. Hi, Matt. Great to be here. Thanks. How are you? How are you coping in the age of COVID? Uh, you know, doing reasonably well. I'm kind of a reclusive person, and I um, have an apartment filled with plants, so I'm I'm managing all right. Yeah, brilliant, brilliant. And yeah. I know that um, so much of your work and, and life revolves around plants and, and garden spaces. So the fact that you're able to have that space indoors must be must be part of the the cure or the preventing of uh, any sort of I guess issues with the isolation. Yes, yes. It, uh, daily restoration happens because I have access to, to an indoor garden in the city, so it's keeping me sane and, and healthy. And I've loved watching society respond with a gardening instinct, with this reflex to buy seeds, buy plants, grow veggies. It's a wonderful thing. Yeah, it is. And that idea to get into na- or into the gardening and, and into edible plants as well, but also decorative yeah. and, and stuff to make you feel great. And also the the homely stuff like baking is also taken taken yeah. off as well. Is it that we didn't have the time to to do these things and now we do, or is it just that a safety net? What what do you think? Right, uh, it's probably got to be a time issue. It's interesting the values that are rising to the surface when we're forced indoors and in our homes, and then we have to think of what we choose to do. And I think feeding ourselves you know, is obviously the most obvious way of nurturing, nourishing, like to nourish yourself. And so, yeah, thinking about what you eat and how you make it and what do you have access to. But I love that there's an instinct in humans to want living things around them. So either pets or plants, you know, if you've got to spend a lot of time at home, who or what, you know, do you want nearby? And I think clearly people want, people want plants. They want living things. 
Yeah, for sure. I contacted you sort of mid to late Feb and it's now mid to late April. And I guess that was because of the the pandemic outbreak and the fact we were going to catch up in person and then we couldn't. But you actually travelled, was it to the States and then and had to sort of lock down? Was that right? Or did you not end up going? No, no, no it wasn't to the States. It was, I, we did a short trip to New Zealand. Okay. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think the Kiwis gave it to me, but I think being a part of, you know, an international trip and coming through the airport, we did self-quarantine for 14 days. And how was that? Was it different from how you're feeling now? Were you not being allowed to go outside at all? Very different from what I'm experiencing and most people experience about the daily walk and going to the shops. Was it quite different? Yeah, it was di- yeah, it was different because you're restricted, you know, like everyone that's been quarantined from travel and you're restricted, but it was also strange because our family did it before the official lockdown measures came into play, so the rest of the world was still spinning and we were stopped and then when we were able to go out for walks into the grocery, the world had changed. Um so it was really strange. It was like waking up and thinking, wow, this all happened while we were uh, asleep. Yeah, that's that's crazy. It was so quick to think that it was really the Formula One weekend that everything started yes. to happen in Victoria, and that wasn't that long ago at all. So it's amazing how times and people's attitudes have shifted so quickly. Oh, amazing. Uh, so I'd love to for you to introduce yourself and, and a little bit about what you do and where you grew up and how you how you got to Melbourne. Yeah, I've been here uh, about three and a half years. So I moved to Australia with my family. Uh, my husband's an Australian, originally from Northeast uh, Country Victoria. Uh, and we have a son who's 16, uh, who was born in the US. So I'm originally from the United States. I grew up in the Southeast from Atlanta, Georgia. But most of my adult life was in Kentucky. And that's where I met my husband, who together we just ran into each other studying theology in Kentucky, as you do, and um, ended up staying there for about 16 to 18 years. And our work was in the city of Lexington, working in a a low-income inner-city neighborhood. And we found our way of neighborliness, of just practicing knowing the place where we live through urban agriculture, uh, community gardening, and urban farming. So Our experience has been always urban and always involving soil and plants in some way. So it's a very long story how we got here. Um, I'll skip that. But um, we had an opportunity to move and do some work here in Melbourne. And we live right in the CBD in a building behind uh, the historic Collins Street Baptist Church. So we're just behind Town Hall. I can see it from my window. I'm level seven in an apartment. Um, So it's been a a big shift. Um, from having an urban farm, a dog, chickens, bees, fruit trees, uh, a lot of food grown sustainably to living in an, a city apartment. And uh, like I said, I've been here just over three years and I work, I consider myself a gardener. That's the work that I consider that I do. It's shifted dramatically to do it indoors, but I also work in neighborhood engagement for Collins Street Baptist Church. So I have two roles, Planted Places, which is this tiny social enterprise that uh, we started a few years ago. But the gardening almost holds it all together. Where I am, it helps me know the place and connect to people. Yeah, the idea of urban gardening is a... Is it a new sort of initiative that cities are starting to get green or has it always been something that's existed? I think it's... I haven't studied the history of it. For sure, it's it's existed, I guess, as long as there have been urban populations. You know, people have creatively grown food on roofs and balconies and up walls. 
you know, I don't, I don't know over the last, you know, several thousand years of agriculture. I don't think much of it's done in cities because it's not practical. But what's really cool is being in the 21st century, experts have helped us understand that, you know, within the next 30 years, most of the world will live in cities. So we'll be in these dense mega cities and, and the human population is going to be far more vertical and close together. And so what I do love in recent times is watching the shift of where food grows and how do we grow this food sustainably for cities. So coming indoors and becoming vertical and growing on rooftops and aquaponics, those kinds of things have are evolving rapidly because of human migration. I do want to get to your story about how you got to Melbourne at some point, if, you, if you'd like to, to say the long version of the story. But I'd love to start with growing up in in Atlanta, Georgia, and then into Kentucky and, and Lexington, Kentucky. And what was it like to grow up in the in the south of the United States or southeast? And what lessons did family and, and school and upbringing sort of teach you? What was your journey in the early days? Well, I grew up in a, in a kind of a classic suburban uh, context with a brother and a sister. So a mom and dad and three kids and a in a middle-class suburban household and a beautiful family, loving family. You know, I grew up to value caring and kindness, hospitality, uh, and justice through both of the ways my parents have lived and set an example. But, you know, the, the truth is, as an American in the Deep South, you know, it's still a segregated place. And in America as a whole still has enormous issues unresolved of racism, economic, geographic boundaries, um, that can be, you know, that you're drawn around um, race, especially in urban environments. So, you know, I, I grew up and went to a, you know, ordinary public high school and I was very aware of, of socioeconomic differences and it really mattered to me. And I, I began to work towards things that mattered to me when I was studying at university. And uh, yeah, in Kentucky, um, Kentucky was a really interesting place because it, I can't think of what it's called. It's a... Um, it was a middle state, so it was a divided state. So Kentucky, you know, there were people that were pro-slavery and people that fought against it, and, and Kentucky was a divided state. And so in Kentucky, you know, the state soil, the very place, was um, conflicted, and they had people hundreds of years ago who were working towards emancipation of enslaved people, and you had people who you know, landowners, and there's money in Kentucky that was built on the back of the industry of slavery, and it's horrible. So what was interesting was I was a semi-outsider, and my husband Jeff was a complete outsider. He was an Australian, and we lived in a urban neighborhood in the city of Lexington that was almost exclusively African-American. We bought a house, and we moved in, and we had a a one-year-old baby, and we didn't know anyone, but we wanted to live there. We wanted to be a part of the neighborhood life. But what we quickly learned were the great disadvantages that were racial, they were social, they were economic and geographic. But our neighborhood was so rich with history. Going back before the Civil War, they were the house we lived in was built by a freed person, a person of color who um, had bought their freedom. So we lived in this incredible home in this rich African-American neighborhood. And really the thing that we could hold in common was the talk of vegetables and food and what was served at the table and chickens. And we began to grow food and meet our neighbors. The garden was the very bridge to building relationships across these big barriers. And we really were knitted in to a place 
through through being outside and and being with our neighbors in in both our garden and a community garden that we helped to start. Wow, what a what a story! How how did you end up in that neighborhood? Was it all by choice? Was it just a, a nice place that you wanted to live, or was there something that you wanted to learn from people that you may not have had a chance to connect with in the past? What what was the the story to get you there? Well, I think we 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 wanted to to live in in a place that was underserved and labels are so problematic because having lived there I would you know never classify it in a way other than the place we loved the most but as we looked at where to live we we wanted to live in a place where we could give ourselves as resources to the place around us and we found a house on a corner we we didn't know the rich history of the house or that in fact the house was on a corner and there were bus stops by both sides of our house that we'd be able to we were at an intersection literally and we'd be able to make these friendships and and work towards common good with our neighbors because we lived at an intersection yeah it was it was a place we we wanted to to join in and we wanted to be advocates alongside people i mean we had a lot to learn because uh, we were outsiders and we could never relate to the past that people had experienced but we wanted to be peaceful people. The neighborhood was was riddled with violence. There's gun violence. There was gang. There was drugs. I mean, there was stuff that, you know, the kind of poverty, and this is middle America, kind of poverty unknown in Australia, just incredible poverty and just no, no help. So we fell in love with it and, and it became an issue of fidelity of, you know, sharing a future and, and being there alongside people. And we were accepted eventually and, and, and welcomed, which was, was amazing. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that acceptance, and you said you used the word, you know, you had to, a lot to learn and being an outsider and mm. almost having to gain that trust of people to then be a part of that community, which is, would have been an amazing journey to experience that. Prior to that, had you had you had much experience in that inner urban environment with gun violence and poverty and, and drugs? Had you experienced that before? Not, no, not at all. Not at all. I, I again, um, it was a wake up for me and and for most people because there there are such class divisions in America that you can live in districts that are just economically defined and often long racial lines. And so, no, I, I, I had no idea um, until I began to align myself with the place and my son's life. And, and I, I, no, I'd had no experience. Um, I'd had lots of experience with going overseas. I'd spent time in Bangladesh. I'd traveled as a university student and had my eyes wide open with incredible places of both color and richness and poverty. But I had not seeing that kind of poverty in my own country um, really until I was, yeah, I was 30 uh, and married and a young mom. And, and you met your husband or eventual husband at university, mm-hmm. is that right? And you were yeah. studying theology. Yeah, yeah, we were studying um, interfaith dialogue and kind of world religions. That was our, we were at a, a theological seminary and we weren't getting theology degrees, but more anthropology. And I think our hope was to to go overseas somewhere and do development, do kind of grass work, grassroots work uh, in a in a country where we would learn a language and live. And it was funny. We really thought, "That's let's go, let's go anywhere." And it was funny. We ended up getting involved with a really small, highly experimental, what was called a missional community. People that just said, "We need we need to live in places with love. We need to live in neighborhoods as neighbors, and we need to be active citizens." 
in the cities where we live. And we got involved with this little movement and ended up, you know, staying in America, which was a, a place you wouldn't think there would be need in that kind of way. But that's, that's, and now we're in Australia, which of course is just, I feel like it's the best country in the world. It's the most beautiful um, in so many ways, just and good place uh, to live, but living in these kind of what you call, I guess, Western contexts and asking what is it, what does social isolation mean? And what does it mean to know or not know our neighbors? What does it mean to be in relationship with the place? I, I think what ended up describing our the last 20 years of our life is placemaking. So I don't know if you've read about placemaking as a movement. No, I'd love to hear, um, hear more, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's um so I mean, you know, placemaking has been talked about and and enacted, I don't know, the last 30 or 40 years, actually starting with Jane Jacobs in New York City back in the 40s. I mean, she's kind of the the grandmother of placemaking and she helped save a lot of historic uh, New York City neighborhoods. But, you know, Melbourne has, so placemaking is often applied to urban design and urban planning. It's the idea of how do you make places for people? You know, cities shouldn't be just big corporate lifeless buildings. They should be places where people meet one another, where there are third places, where there are spaces where people publicly hang out, sit, relax, meet one another. And so Melbourne was really influenced by the placemaking movement, I don't know, 20, 25 years ago. And so the changes on Swanston, the the widening of the footpaths, the trams, Melbourne is one of the best cities in the world as far as being um, pedestrian friendly and being livable. Obviously, we've had these awards of livable city. And that's all been about placemaking, asking how do we have places for people? So the way we embodied that bigger sense or philosophy of placemaking was to say, in this well-defined geography, it might be one block or three streets or this neighborhood. Do I know anyone's name? Do I know how people are doing? And in our neighborhood back in Lexington, we had to ask the question, do my neighbors have enough to eat? And they didn't. They not only had enough, didn't have enough to eat, they didn't have any fresh food. So this called a food desert. So for us as placemakers, we we learned from sociologists that there are food deserts, rural and urban food deserts, where people cannot access fresh food if they want to. They have to go by bus or by car. So for us, placemaking can be contextualized. It's driven by love and affection for a given geography. And you say, well, I live here. Because I live here, I'm concerned about the people around me. And how are they? And in Kentucky, we had to ask, what do people have access to? And living in Melbourne, the question about placemaking is, does anybody know each other? We live in this city of millions of people passing through every day. And does anybody know each other's names or speak each other's languages? Mm. Um, and what's interesting through the um, research and publish, publishing of um, Hugh McKay, I can't think of his newest book, but of course he's been such a gift to Australia because over all this time he's looked at how's Australia doing and uh, his most recent work discovered that not only do we not know the names of our neighbors, we don't trust our neighbors. Like a staggering 60% of, or something of Australians don't know the names and don't trust neighbors. So we live in a time which before the COVID pandemic, they were calling this a um, an, an epidemic of social isolation. Those kind of major questions matter 
to where you live? Um, and those are questions of placemaking. So the city of Melbourne is a great example of doing brilliant uh, built environment and urban planning around placemaking. What I love to think about as a gardener is not just places for people, but places for everything. So that includes wildlife, trees, birds, pollinators. How do we make places for everybody? Because I think humans can only really be fully human when they're in green biodiverse spaces. That's amazing. I, I've had a few conversations recently with a few people that have touched on those ideas that you've really gone in depth with and, and the idea of okay. placemaking, but also yeah. had a conversation recently with brother Harry Prout who lives in West Heidelberg or the old Olympic Village up in oh. Melbourne's north. And he has been a part of that community for about 20 years and has really okay. been a, a building, a location where people can come when they need him and, and the people that live in his uh, village called Exodus uh, the Exodus oh, Village, yeah, wow. and and it's oh, it's amazing, and and oh. he really has these connections that he's made over the years with people that are really, really struggling with sort of socioeconomic mm. Uh, mm. disconnection uh, with yes. sort of things that you've been speaking about, whether it's healthcare, whether it's education, yeah. and and sort of that's the cycle of underprivileged or poverty that that exists mm. and it's one of the yes. more impoverished places in Melbourne oh, so okay put himself as a part of that and and really does talk constantly about the idea of community and and giving people mm. the opportunity to have a voice and that you can wave and say hello down the street and that gives people confidence and mm. starts to improve the livelihoods of others and Mm. That, yeah, that connects really a lot with what you're saying. And then also I had a, another conversation a uh, couple of weeks ago with James Haddam who was talking about the the difference. So he's the CEO of the Tasmanian Land Conservancy and he was discussing mm. how there's a lot of separation between these things that you're discussing, the idea that there's an area for housing, an area for business and then an area for parks and wildlife that is empty of everything else. And the idea to bring those things together is something that's lacking in our, I guess, modern developed world. Yes. Yes, that's right. And he would have a real vision that hopefully will come to be fulfilled that we cannot be well, like they know internally, a human can't be well without biodiversity in a, in our gut bacteria. And we cannot be well if our living environment isn't biodiverse in some way. Um, and so whether, you know, it's in rural or urban settings, we need biodiversity. We thrive with biodiversity at all levels, from insects to pets, to humans, to trees. Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about uh, was it Hugh McKay? Hugh McKay? Was it? Yeah, is it Hugh McKay? It's, yeah, he, I think it's McKay. I'm not sure. It's M-C-K-A-Y. Yep. And I wish I could think of it. He's written so many books, you know, as a social researcher. I mean, I don't know how long he's been, you know, writing and watching over Australia and paying attention to social trends in Australia. What, like 40 years? Or He's, he's brilliant. And I heard him speak after his book was published. I'm so sorry I can't think of his most recent book. Uh, reimagining Australia, maybe it's called reimagining. Anyway, Australia reimagined. Yes. Yeah. Right. Yes. Yes. Sorry, yes. I just looked it up just quickly because Good. I think I know him from listening to ABC conversations, and I think I've heard him on there before. And it was a a brilliant conversation. If if I'm thinking about the same person, yes. which I think I am, yes. so yeah, unbelievable um, thinker and sociologist, I guess. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's paying attention to the well-being of society as a whole. And, you know, his most recent good long look at how are we doing, you know, in 2015, 2018, was to say we are socially isolated. And this cuts through all economics and class and anything else, which is of interest to us because we've, in our vocation, have been very, very concerned for the poor and the most vulnerable, but we're also concerned for human well-being in general, regardless if you're wealthy and you live alone in a penthouse or if you're poor and you struggle to have housing, um, humans are made for relationship. And that's what Hugh McKay affirmed. And then he gave us the diagnosis, we're not doing so well. And because epidemiologists who are now busy looking at the COVID virus, we're looking closely at the effects of social isolation. What they're finding across the world is loneliness, not, not living alone, because you can live alone and be quite happy, mm. but loneliness, lack of meaningful relationship is as toxic as smoking and is, has effects on our mortality. I mean, people die from this. So it's, it's really important. Yeah, I heard um, something like 14 years off the lifespan of someone that cl- mm. is lonely or, or you know, self-diagnoses mm. themselves as lonely. And mm. that is shocking. And not only lo- lifespan, but quality of life while you are living would, would go down when someone yeah. feels lonely. Because as you said, isolation can be something that's really uh, wanted for some people and, and in certain circumstances. But the idea yes. of being lonely means that you're lacking that love, that relationship. And That is so, so important. And you see it. And I liked how you were talking about not only for people that are isolated due to poverty, but isolated due to our Mm. lifestyle as a society. The fact is today we are living in these, what should be the Mm. best time for everyone ever. We've got enough wealth to go around, yet we have you know, suicide rates that are going up and depression and, and reliance on drugs, whether legal or not legal. There's people that are addicted to these things or gambling because of yes. trying to find a way to get through the pain or, or whatever it might be or find joy somewhere. So why is mm. that happening is a question that I guess we need more people to ask, don't we? That's right. That's right. Well, and you, you didn't ask me, but what I believe is I'd love to hear your opinion for sure. <laughs> well, I mean, it's really, it, I guess it's probably the the foundation to all my values is, is this understanding of the world is that we're made for relationship and not not just relationship to one another, which, you know, humans have been at the center of the picture since enlightenment, but we're made, and this is where ecology and, and biodiversity come in now to save us from ourselves, is we're, we're made for relationship at every level. So we need one another and we have to relate to the soil to be healthy. So we all really need access to soil because our immune system is so tied to the health of our gut, which is tied to the type of food we eat. So we were beginning to see that connection in Kentucky from the food we were growing and our neighbors were growing in our soil. But I'm exploring it and have been out of my own loneliness in a, in a, a city apartment is this connection to plants and plant life in pots. So for, for the most vulnerable people, this, this is my opinion, that there, there is no more a vulnerable person than a person seeking asylum, whether that's a child or a family or um, a single person. But there are thousands of people in Australia seeking asylum. They're no different than refugees. They've had to flee persecution. 
The only difference is they're not secured any future status to stay in Australia. And so they are incredibly vulnerable and they're often living alone or living in very small spaces or they're in detention, which I don't have access to anyone in detention. But what we proposed was the idea that just one plant is this living thing that that interacts and, and responds to your love and care and can grow and respond to a relationship with you, just one plant can make a difference. And so in just, you know, 18 months of working with asylum seekers and introducing plants, I'm talking about indoor, simple house plants in pots, you know, they cost 12 or $15 a piece. Mm -hmm. Can they make a difference? And they do. And and we've seen it just with a small group of people um, within BabCare's housing for asylum seekers that plants, just one plant to tend and keep can make a really big difference on how someone feels. So you started Planted Places, is that right, in Australia once you arrived? Was that after arrival or was it part of your plan upon arriving? No, 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 no. It was after we arrived. We we had an opportunity to um, utilise a space. and, And to be honest, I think a lot of nonprofits around the world are turning to social enterprise as a more sustainable means to get off a grant treadmill you have to ask the question, if we have vision and purpose, um, how do we sustain it? Mm. And a lot of people work other jobs and then, you know, sustain their passion through a nonprofit that way. But social enterprise, you know, theoretically is great because it can act as a charitable organization, but do business and all of the profits go back into supporting the mission and cause of the organization. So there are thousands of social enterprises across Australia and America. They're really creative ways for people to explore and exercise whatever vision and values. And so for us, we had an opportunity with a space in the building where we live, this bottom, this sub-basement ground floor room um, that had been used for many years for hospitality, for welcome, for feeding people on the street, just beautiful long history, a space of welcome and belonging, and we had the chance to reimagine it. And so in that pause of, well, what do you do with a blank slate with a space that has a history, but what could its future be? I just thought of what I love the most and the chance to do what you love the most is, is, is rare and privileged. And I thought, let's make it a garden. So I think it was unexpected. It's, it's an unusual use of a, um, you know, a half basement space in the at the end of a laneway right in the center of the city. Mm. But uh, we thought, what the heck, let's see if we can make it work. And, and it, it, at first we thought we could um, work with asylum seekers and refugees, which we, we did when we were in the U.S., and we could set up aquaponics systems indoors and grow food and sell to local restaurants. We learned that that's extraordinarily difficult. It's complicated. It takes a lot of expertise. And I was doing this part-time. So what I looked at was my own life and in my own sense of um, loneliness and dislocation in my apartment, I began to buy plants and put them in my windows. And then I began to read that plants are really good for well-being, creativity, productivity, and they clean your air. Um, They actually purify volatile organic compounds out of the air and every living space should have plants. So as I read that, I thought, well, our son's bedroom needs plants. So I put them there. But I couldn't begin to do that without asking the question, well, do our neighbors have plants? What about all the international students nearby who live in these tiny little apartments? Sometimes more people than really should should fit in a tiny space. And what about, you know, asylum seekers and people who don't otherwise have access to 
to an ecological environment? How can we do something to make a difference? And so that's where the social enterprise idea was born. And I'll say this and, and finish. Um, the space, what, I, what we brought into the space was our learning about permaculture. So, you know, permaculture is such a gift to the world from Australia. It's a beautiful philosophy um, and a systems thinking about how to work with land and work alongside nature and not against it. And really, it's a humble approach to doing anything because it says, it says to a space or an environment, teach me about you and I'll walk alongside you. So it's really partnering with natural elements. And so here we are looking at this kind of dark, cold basement space and thinking, we can't grow food, we don't have much light, but we could do houseplants. What plants can tolerate colder spaces, low light? And so we began to work with the space, not against it, and we made it as sustainable as possible. So we don't heat the space in winter and we don't cool it in the summer. And what's amazing is, I mean, we have hundreds of plants in the green room, they modify their own environment. So it's humid, it's purified. It's just a a beautiful space now because we've let the garden um, have its way. Yeah. Oh, that's unbelievable. So did it, you said it started with that idea and, and maybe even working with the people in your building, the international students to start with. At what point did, oh, well, I guess that social enterprise idea what is the process behind, I guess, beginning something like this? Because that idea of of you being, I guess, empowered enough to actually find what you love and bring it mm. across and bring it to others and actually start to help others and, and not not needing that that grant and approval and almost you've got grand plans on a very small scale rather than the idea of we need to, to <laughs> constantly... Uh, contact as many different people to try and keep you know growing and then as you said a lot of not profits not-for-profits end up failing how does a social Mm. enterprise work differently you know I, I, I don't know I'm so new to the work of social enterprise and I know that it's really it's it's very hard work and often requires years of initial investment um in the terms of grants and we got a grant because in order to even be established as a, um, sorry, I'm, I'm trying not to think the American term is 501c3. Um, here in Australia, we say uh, a DGR, a deductible gift recipient chari- charitable organization, which okay. means, Matt, if you had uh, $500 you wanted to donate, I can gift receipt that for tax deduction. So in Australia, that is very rigorously regulated and they can only be approved to work towards alleviating poverty. So Australia has done a great job of saying there's all kinds of not-for-profits, but if you're going to have DGR status, if you're going to be able to receive grants and receipt people for donations, then you have to be working to alleviate poverty. So it was a long process and it's a legal process and we had the help of a lawyer and we had grant funding to pay for those uh, legal fees that established us officially as a DGR, but you can work as a social enterprise, making a profit, um, which is often very hard. And um, but you fold that back into the the mission. You, they're not shareholders, and it's not a business. So I would just say social enterprise are such a creative route, and we have lots of friends with social enterprises in terms of cafes and and p- training people to go back to work. But um, it is very hard to do what you love. And Planet Places is very small. It's very humble and it's very small because I haven't had my full time to devote to it. 
And I think, you know, something like this is highly experimental. And, and I think that's the take I've had on it is to think all we can do is try and learn, especially when you're partnering with nature, whether you're working outdoors on a you know, a nature conservancy or your farming, you're always working with nature as your partner. So for me, setting up this social enterprise, my partners are plants. Mm. They, they, do, they do the work. Just last week, I mean, this is a beautiful story. I, I can't go anywhere and be with asylum seekers at the moment. They are in lockdown like I am, and, and I can't actually, you know, go and garden alongside some of the residents that I've worked with in the last year. And so I had a order of plants that a caseworker picked up about 75 plants and distributed them to families and men living in isolation. And it made a huge difference. And these are just little, um, you know, five and $10 house plants. Um, I sent the caseworker off with instructions and um, <laughs> uh, best wishes, and they distributed them all. And the residents are ready for more. Um, and so it was a way from a distance for me to get plants to people who like everybody else in the world are, are anxious and stressed. Um, so plant, that's all to say plants are my partners. I was so thankful for their partnership because they went out in the world and I knew they were going to do good that I couldn't do. Yeah. But the fact that you, you sort of had the ball rolling there that you (laughs) grabbed them and and made it happen. Is someone taking on that mantle maybe in the asylum seeker community that's actually starting to propagate and and starting to spread their love of plants now? Is it, have you heard that? Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. There's um, there are a few guys that that I've worked with that um, that live in a shared residential facility where they're you know are thirty or forty men, and there are a couple of them who are really keen gardeners and have done a beautiful job, and they are keeping up with plants in common areas. So the indoor areas have become more beautiful because of the work we've done together, and these guys have taken it on to keep those plants going and they've propagated and they've done indoor and outdoor gardening work. And um, they've come to visit me in the green room and we've talked about, and I always send them off with more plants and they say, Oh, we have plants. And sometimes they disappear, you know, because somebody comes and says, Oh, I think I want a plant. And they take it when no one's looking. And I said, that's great because we can always make more. Yeah. Um, the, the, The beautiful thing about working along with nature nature's economy is one of abundance. So Mm. one seed can produce thousands and one plant, a healthy parent plant can have propagated from it, have new plants made from it almost an infinite amount. Um, So I taught them propagation and now a couple of them know how to do, how to propagate plants, put them in water, grow new roots, pot a new plant, have something to give. So yeah, that's been at the heart of what we're trying to do is plant the, the economy of plant propagation. And the economy of plant propagation being one of abundance is how the opposite of how our sort of economy works at the moment, which is one of scarcity. The things that are more scarce are hoarded and kept at high prices for only a certain amount of people to have access to or to try to dangle that carrot in front of people to to live maybe a more individualised life rather than one where we can find abundance. That's right. What? really brought you so you you talked about your I want to go back a little bit so you talked about your interfaith dialogue was was it religion was it a sense of God was it what was it that brought you to have the values that you held to actually want to say I want to go out in the world I want to learn how to connect with areas of the world whether I know that you ended up in in a city 
in the US and then also in Australia. But, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of people, and I think you commented on this, that people think Africa or Latin America or mm-hmm. Southeast Asia or something. But there's so much of it going around. What actually drove you to, first of all, have the values that you you hold and then have enough of a purpose and drive to say, I actually want to learn as much as possible to be able to make as much of a difference as possible? That's, yeah, it's a great question. I mean, no doubt my values were instilled in me from my parents and in my family. My parents were extraordinary examples of generosity, um, incredible amounts of generosity, faithfulness, loving and caring, and and such kindness. And and I, I learned from both of them in the ways they lived that out and raised us. But then when I was a young person, going my own way, I, I exhausted really what the world had to offer. Um, so I went to, before theology, I went to graduate school and studied and got a, a master's of science. And I was working in a clinical research setting and I loved my, I was young and I had a degree and I was working, but, but I spent everything I had and I accumulated and I acquired this kind of life that I just, I mean, almost literally woke up one day and thought, this is utterly bankrupt. This is empty of meaning. This this isn't what it means to be alive. Mm. I mean, I think I was 26. I was 27. And I had kind of the perfect life. I mean, I wasn't rich, but I had, I'd I'd excelled. I'd gone to school. I was working in really cool environment in research. Um, I had my own apartment and I just, it just was empty. Um, and none of those things are bad, but they're not life-giving. And I think some, it's too long of a story, but my life just, it was a, um, there's a great theologian, she's now passed on, but she talks about a rummage sale. Every 500 years, the church has a rummage sale. These ma- major times of emergence where the social and structural fabric of society unravels and new things emerge. It happens kind of every 500 years. She talks about having a, a, a rummage sale. My life, literally, I had a rummage sale. My life, my life emptied out over a very rapid period of time and turned in a whole new direction where I gave up the things that I thought mattered to find the stuff that really did matter. And, you know, it's funny, as I look back now, I'll be 50 in a couple of months and nothing I gave up do I want or did I do I miss? Um, and so what I was looking for was meaningful work connecting to my why. Why? Well, I love people and I want to see people connected to one another and and living out with purpose. And and I've just had the privilege to be able to follow that um, that pursuit of greater meaning. And yes, her faith has helped and philosophy has helped and travel has helped. I guess a certain amount of risk-taking to say, I'll leave behind what I know and step into the unknown in order to find what's worthwhile. And I would never look back. I would, I would not look back from, from this journey. And what a journey. You've given me goosebumps in that. I, I no. really, <laughs> I, I love, love that. And I think so. I think it takes such bravery and courage to actually say that mm. because you went against what you were supposed to do in terms of what mm. society has taught you to do. It's, mm. you know, be a good person first, you know, but what does that mean? But then secondly, it's yeah. earn some money. It's, you know, get a job. It's uh, be a part of the the economy. We want it to grow. But then also 
buy stuff and and you know accumulate as we spoke about before, but accumulate this stuff that's that's constantly needed to be upgraded or it goes out of fashion and these sort of terms and that should be uh, I guess signalling that there's something mm-hmm. wrong with this and I'm going through or I went through probably at 28-ish, something that you sort of mm. was feeling at 26 and I'm 31 now so it's not long ago. I'm yeah. sort of in the midst yeah. of it, I think. <laughs> um, yeah. But there was a time where everything just came crashing down around me uh. because, and not not in a in a way that, you know, so many other people actually suffer. I have a great life and, and I've always had that, but it was that moment of fighting that and saying why aren't I as happy or as filled with meaning as I could have been when I've done everything I've been told to do, I've yes. got, you know, the, the house, the the girlfriend, the the pet, the mm-hmm. job, the a job in an area that is teaching. I'm, I'm a teacher. So it's yeah. it's something that's supposed to be rewarding and it is rewarding, but it's also there's got to be something more and you've sort of expressed that. So when you were 26, did did it fall in a heap or did you did you have to go into a pit before you were able to rise up and decide to start emptying out? Yeah, you know, I think it, it 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 wasn't like a house collapsed on me and I had to push away the rubble to to find the air. I mean, I I with with a steadiness, I just faced forward and walked forward in a direction, but it it called for for sacrifice and loss of what's familiar. I mean, that's at that time and then especially moving to Australia, I've I've experienced this sense of wilderness is a great metaphor. Of course, it's part of the Hebrew people and the story of uh, wandering in the wilderness for mm. 40 years. And some like psychologists like Carl Jung and um, more recently um, faith writers like Richard Rohr have written about first half and second half of life and the first half of life and building up status and identity and a name and those things. And what they say is often, and it's not age dependent, so you could be 28 years old or you could be 50 or 70, something happens. And this is the role of disruption in any system, any natural system. Disruption um, creates chaos and out of that comes change. And arguably, I think, you know, it's inevitable. We can't avoid, it's what's happening right now with this virus. We can't avoid things change. And so it's through that change and that suffering and loss of what's familiar that we actually enter into a deeper sense of our being. Um, And that's where they say maturity comes in. And again, you could be 28 and go through it or 50. And it's that journey of leaving behind what was known and what was once cherished and walking in the deeper. So I think, yeah, I didn't, I didn't have to come out of, you know, total collapse. I, I chose my way, but I still put on an altar, everything I loved and everything I knew and, and even a sense of accomplishment and left it for what I didn't know, but for the journey. Um, I guess that's what Joseph Campbell's hero journey, um, the myth. Is that the idea of almost that archetype or is that a... What, what are we, yes, yes, yeah. yes, yes, yeah. yes, yes, that's exactly it. So that, that um, almost hero and, and one of the most known, I guess, I mean, there's there's lots, but one of the, the known is the, that I've spoken about is the Lion yeah. King and the journey of Simba. Uh, yeah. I think that came from that sort of hero's yes. journey where... You know, you had something, you had it all, and then that sense of loss. And, and you know, it's put into a Disney film, so it's very different from. <laughs> but, yes. but that idea to, to overcome and, and journey and travel and companions along the way and, and events that 
guide you to end up actually take, making a difference. That, that journey of the hero can be yes. seen as something extremely uh, mythical and metaphorical or it can go all yes. the way down to the Lion King, can't it? <laughs> yes, that's exactly right. Yeah, I think so. It's uh, what Bono says, all that you can't leave behind. Um, you know, again, the, the things that the world would inform me are of value, the things that I have left, identification, status, stuff it is not, I don't miss it at all. And what has changed my life, what, what the, the greatest treasures, and I could never have bought them, no matter how much money I had, were relationships that we formed with refugees, with people who'd lost everything, people from Iraq and Congo and Bosnia, um, who became like family to us. This precious treasured love of the stranger, of somebody who had really lost everything, nothing that I could relate to. These people first gathering around their tables, then beginning to share in their lives, and then beginning to belong to each other in the way you belong to family. Those are the things that I, if I had a deathbed moment, I would cherish. And I couldn't have bought those things. I couldn't have studied to get those things. I couldn't have gotten a degree in those friendships. That was just through living life alongside other people, especially people who have suffered. And those things are more precious to me uh, than anything I have. Amazing. Does that first half of status, identity and stuff, the second half that you mentioned, is it the journey? Is it simply the journey or is there something else that, that defines that second half? I think it is the journey. I think you're right. I, I I think it because it because to say that I think you're right in that there's just movement. It's staying in motion in a sense, not settling. But I've studied widely lots of faiths and I learn a lot from Buddhism and the idea of renunciation. So in the mythological literature, this idea of hero's journey, you also get this maturity is couched in mastery, and mastery, true mastery is is considered being renounced. So having no needs, I guess it's ultimately contentment or magnanimity, you know, an inner, an inner dwelling with such peace and contentment that you need nothing and want for nothing. And some things I've read, um, and that's very Eastern philosophically, but that's the idea to truly master is to master your desires, your appetites, the things that you long for to come through suffering and to be content. I'm not there. It's off in the distance, but it certainly inspires me. Yeah, that unraveling, or I called it the debunking of the self in a way where you <sighs> just completely realize that all those things that you were caught up on, yeah, you can't take them away when you die, you can't bring them. You don't want to gift them to anyone. So are we at the mercy of what happens to us or do we have a, a role to play in our own lives? And once you sort of realise that, then it, yes. it's empowering. It's yes. sad because you feel that loss of all the things that you might have desired or you, you may have to, you don't want to lose relationships over it, but, you know, you have to sometimes say, well, the job or the town or the, the friendship group that I had or the sporting club may not give it what I need anymore. And hopefully you can bring it all together and, and you know, still engage with everyone. But sometimes you do need to go on that journey and go through the desert or whatever it might be. So yes, when you decided to, to do that and, and leave, what was the you said it wasn't the house came crashing down. You just decided to do it, which is courageous in its own right. But what was the first step? What was the, the first initial footstep that you could say that brought you to the, the next stage of your life and brought you on the journey you've been on? Well, it's interesting. I think 
I decided in the absence of knowing how anything would work out. I mean, I can remember, you know, I was single, I was 26, 27 years old, and I was very committed. I just committed to a new clinical trial. Um, I was working at a, at a medical school and I um, just committed to a, a new lease on my apartment. Um, so I was very committed. I was very tethered. But the first step was, I'm going to go. And I didn't know how anything would work out. And what was amazing, and I, I won't go into all the details of the story, every single thing that had tethered me, you know, they talk about faith moving mountains. Mountains just shifted for me. My, I had this brilliant job and, and they needed to replace me with someone of similar training. And one of my dear friends who was working third shift at the post office, she was a single mother of two. She had a, a clinical degree like I did. She got my job and she was, she was still in it as far as I know, 20 years later. And I had a friend call me the week I decided to leave. Five days later, a friend called and said, hey, I'm moving back to the city can you help me find an apartment near where you live? I said, how about my apartment? And um, every single obstacle subsequently dissolved. Um, but the first step was one of total unknowing. It was just a total faith step of, I want to do this and, and I want to move forward and everything else took care of itself. Now, doesn't that's not to say it's easy um, and it's smooth, but I think that certainly does happen when you act out of a deep center of, of your own instinct, your own sense of your own why, you know, life crafts itself around you. I, I really think that it's happened to me on multiple occasions. Yeah, and that and that affirms for me that idea of you know life happening on the stage with you know almost a puppet master, how a lot of people look at life, and then yeah. and for me it was more conversations and discussions with people and philosophy, but it was a lot of uh, meditating as well, and mm. trying to actually start control. Once you realise you're not in control of almost anything, <laughs> including your thoughts, it's it's liberating mm. because you can start to try to gain an awareness of things rather than trying to control everything. So really it affirms to me that idea of we are beings with agency, not simply, yeah, these crafted, controlled individuals living almost like ants in a colony. And and, and in saying that, I I said this recently, but even bugs and even swarms of things have an an independence and their own yes. story as well. And you'd yes. find that with working with plants too, that they'd probably have some sort of personality or. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> How does they that do. work? Yeah. 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 Oh yeah. Well, it's a, it's hotly debated in the botanical scientific world of our, our plant sentient beings, like they're living, but you know, they don't really know anything, but mm. scientists argue that plants make decisions every day. If you film them, they move towards light plants, respond in ways that scientists can gauge and measure and so yeah i mean i think you know and they in in evolutionary terms they were here before us and we can't breathe without them i feel very humble in the presence of plants and i always ask students if i'm in an education session like you know can plants live without us and they think about it and say oh yeah and i say well can we live without plants nope um so i i i feel a strong personal relationship to plants. And I think gardeners are like that. I think gardeners have a sense either of place, their garden as a whole, or of individual plants or trees, people who are tree lovers or arborists or people who plant. They're beautiful living things and they're mysterious. So yeah, I, I think they are um, 
filled with uh, personality and presence. I mean, they certainly are company. Plants certainly keep me company, which is part of my longing in the work of Planted Places was to provide the company of a plant. And you mentioned human agency. I, agency, I think, is really at one of the core elements of being a human is the ability to affect something else. And, and I think, as a gardener, to tend and to keep something else. We have that longing to tend and to keep land or plants or trees or creatures, animals. So yeah, agency is, is really central to what I believe in. And in, in people who have no choice and asylum seekers really are the most vulnerable and they, they have no choices about their future. Their futures lie with other people and they're stateless. I mean, they are without mm. identity and security for a future. So the tiny, tiny acts of agency that come with planting seeds or cultivating, cutting a plant, growing a new plant, seeing new leaves form in response to the care they've provided, it can be life-saving. When did you start your journey with gardening? You left the the lab, the medical sort of science journey, and then you did, were you gardening at that stage? Did you grow up with gardens at home or did you start? What initiated it? You know, it's when I was a graduate student first time around, I, I had potted herbs. My first garden was potted, you know, just culinary herbs. I, I longed to grow things and I don't know where it came from. I, I'm convinced it came from one of my grandmothers who was an amazing gardener and grew all of their own food, the house where my father grew up. But she never taught me anything and my parents did not garden. I mean, they garden, they just had a, a suburban landscape. So I'm self-taught, but it did start back in my mid-20s and it really ran parallel with learning to cook. So my love for cooking and then where do things come from and how do I grow some of the things I'm going to cook. So when I um, first married, when Jeff and I first married, our very first place, a rented apartment, we just dug up a strip in the backyard and asked the landlord, can we put in a little garden? And uh, we dug up this, this I don't know, two foot wide, 10 foot strip and planted um, just some summer vegetables. And what was beautiful is one of the most meaningful friendships we have was made from that little garden. I was out in, in it and on the street nearby, a woman walked past, a beautiful older woman, and she stopped and said, oh, I love your garden. And we began to talk, and she was a refugee from Iraq, twice over a refugee, and just one of the most beautiful women who taught me how to make bread, who taught me how to offer hospitality, who welcomed us into their home. That, I guess all the gardens in my life have been tied to friendships, the formation of friendships. So yes, over time, the gardens got bigger and bigger and bigger. <laughs> and then smaller and indoors. Do you think that meeting this refugee from Iraq brought mm. you to where you're at now? Or did you find instantly a connection with someone that has every right to be afraid or scared or to not want to connect with people, invited you into their home and life and taught you a vital skill? Yes. Was that part of that understanding oh, of yes. giving back? Yes, yes. And of, and really, it's it's the paradox. The, the economy of abundance was offered by people who had little. They were the most generous. Mm -hmm. um, it was extraordinary that I learned as a young woman, newly married, I learned hospitality. I mean, I'd learned from my mother for sure in beautiful ways, but I learned hospitality, table hospitality from an Iraqi Muslim woman. Uh, and they they just treated us like their own. We became like their own children. In fact, Jeff, 
my husband um, married their daughter, one of their daughters, and her um, husband. He did their wedding. Um, so we we got wrapped into this beautiful family that had suffered mightily at the hands of war and dislocation, and they gave me, well, they just gave us everything. It was beautiful. The tables were certainly turned. Oh, it's it's that as you said, it's the paradox of. People, yeah, usually with the least or with maybe the hardest yeah. stories or or the maybe even fought the hardest to get what they have, have the biggest hearts. And it's something that we can learn. As you said earlier, that we're in the most livable city in the world with just yeah. legal systems and an economy that's thriving, that actually a government that's able to mm-hmm. keep supporting people quite generously in a way. And in this yes. time, or most people, a lot of people missing out, which will go probably uh, touch on. Uh, as well, but that people want to hoard things. And I find myself doing the same thing right now, organising a renovation. And I was on Gumtree and I started wanting to give things away. And then I said, oh, maybe we can get 10 bucks from this or 20. And then I thought, what am I doing? <laughs> I don't yeah, need that money. Right, uh, like, right. You can just d- give this out, you know, like yes, what, what yes. am I thinking? And so, yeah, it was just laughing about that and saying, yeah, I could end up with a little bit of money in my pocket, but not only it may not sell, but also someone else gets something that they want or that they will cherish that I don't need anymore. What yes. more could I want? And yeah, I guess that that idea of continuing to move forward and have what you love and be who you love and joining that up with generosity and giving and you can actually marry up the two. You don't have to live in a cave with nothing to be generous, you know, or, or to be That's free. Right. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Well, our our time in our quarantine, our family, we were fed by our neighbors in our building. Our building is mixed use, so there's church offices and multi-purpose space, and but the two levels, there are three levels with households, and one is uh, a level of asylum seekers, and they fed us. They brought food and left it at our door. Just last yesterday, I had a message, and she had made dinner for us. I mean, we're out of you know, our own quarantine. But um, our other neighbours who were asylum seekers 20 years ago um, have become Australian citizens. They would send a message and say, we're going to leave some food outside your door. So literally we were fed and cared for and the recipients of the generosity of our neighbours, all who happened to be asylum seekers or at one time people seeking asylum. It's the most beautiful, it's the most beautiful thing to receive that. Does that come from, do you think, going through the journey of being a refugee or an asylum seeker, or is it a cultural thing, or is it a little bit of both? What do you think? I think, I think, it's, I think it's both. I think you would never want to know what these people have seen, the kind of loss and, and devastation they've known and suffering, but I think out of it there is this redemption and in in what matters. But I do think it's cultural because when we worked in the U.S. with refugees, especially Iraqi, Middle Eastern refugees would say, I've been here a year and I've never been into a home of an American. What, why, why haven't anyone, why hasn't anyone ever had me for dinner? You know, and I, they, they, we had real conviction from our friends, many of them from other parts of the world and other faiths were far more hospitable and open and generous with their time and their table than we were, or, or, you know, people I knew who never had anybody over unless they were, you know, good friends and well-known. So I do think that culturally Australia and America 
which are very, very different, but do have similarities as more individualistic cultures could learn a lot from African and Middle Eastern cultures and, and Asian cultures that are very welcoming and somehow always seem to find enough. Mm. <laughs> they don't have much and they find plenty to put on the table. That has always been my experience in 20 years was an experience of abundance and um, goodness and, and extraordinary food. I mean, the food we were brought last night was just extraordinary. It was, could have been in a restaurant and she made it in the kitchen. <laughs> yeah. Unbelievable. That, that idea, my friend actually went to Iran recently and it sort of triggered that story, this story about, I think he was feeling sick and he might've even thrown up or something. Uh, he'd eaten something bad and, and didn't know any of the language was off in the middle of Iran on his own. And, mm. and someone just tapped him on the shoulder and said, sort of, you know, come to my place, my mum my will cook you dinner. <laughs> and mm. and he went and yeah. he had yeah. a big feast cooked for him and he, you know, was they gave him the remedy of how to feel better from an upset stomach and all this yeah. stuff. And, yeah. and they did that. And I can never imagine a strange foreigner in Melbourne getting that from a just a, a generic potentially yes. great person getting invited from vomiting on the street at the near the shops mm, to come to come over to my house I'll help you out it's almost uh, how can you do that what about if they stole or what if they got you sick or whatever it's, it was none of that it's that that's, is something that yeah is is beautiful yeah absolutely that's why there are parables across the world about being welcomed by the stranger you know, in all faith traditions, there are stories, compelling stories of of the stranger being the host, of the poor one being the generous one. You know, these are the paradoxes. And I think our fear and the false sense of self, which again, Buddhism is a great philosophy and faith that helps us understand the idea of false separate self and about how everything is connected. Um, there are people who live like that day to day, um, recognizing that we're connected to one another, even if we don't know each other's names. And maybe this pandemic will have a huge impact and change how we see who and what we belong to. We belong to our neighborhoods and our places and our treaties um, mm. and our and strangers. Mm. The little initiatives of people knocking on the door and saying their name and their number and, and saying, if you need yes. it, let me know. And that's the first time maybe for however many years someone's been living in the neighbourhood, they may have contacted their neighbour. And that idea of neighbour is, it's almost lost what it was supposed to have meant in, in big cities like we are living in today. That's right. We can only hope that these will be lasting connections. Um, they'll be life-saving connections um, for sure. So are you optimistic about this, I guess, pandemic? I mean, we, we get through the health concerns and try to limit the amount of people that are suffering and sick and, and dying, and then we get through the next stage, which might be an economic downturn. Are you optimistic about the step after that, Want the recovery and, and a new society? Do you have where you filled with not dread but almost a apprehension of what's going to happen? Well, it's it's funny. I, I I'm I'm not a, a citizen of this place, so I don't know. Um, I have zero expertise. I'm incredibly impressed with Australia and how the response has been on a local and a state and federal level. And I can't take the optimism out of me because I am an American, um, and and we're often quickly hopeful and optimistic. But I do really believe in 
well, one, I think chaos is inevitable. Um, and I don't wish this upon people, but I think in response to chaos, we have incredible capacity to be creative, to be innovative, to reinvent and change ourselves in the way we live. And so I, I, I do have hope. And, and, it, and it does strip away what we think matters. You know, we do walks every day and because we live in the center of the city and it's like a ghost town, everything's shut. Just the other day we were walking by, I mean, a set of luxury shops. And I said to Jeff, look at this, like, all this stuff people would have been convinced a few months ago they need or want, it's it's locked behind glass and you don't need it ever. And and so there'll be a realignment of values for sure. And I, I know you know that. And I, I do think there's, when there's chaos out of on the other side, there's such a chance for creative response and there is no end to love. So, I mean, if we make friendships with our neighbors because we've needed to know that they're okay and they have what they need and we have what we need, love continues and, and you can't exhaust it. I mean, there is no, it's not finite, but I can only love six new people in my life. <laughs> um, you know, um, our capacity to be connected to place and people I think is, is endless. And this might really open up back to place, making a sense of connection. So something a little bit different for you today, uh, Sherry and I actually stopped the conversation after part one, because she had to take a phone call from a friend from Sarajevo and I called her back the next day and we continued our chat and instead of being up in her apartment, she was actually down in the green room and I started recording a little bit into the tour and I thought I'd share a little bit of Sherry's passion for her green space and gardening to start us off and then we'll get straight into some questions and the first question actually relates to the phone call to Sarajevo. So that's the context for you. So for part two, I bring you Sherry Maddock. Otherwise, all these plants are thriving on either grow lights or just ordinary uh, interior lighting. So we have all these, I don't know, hundreds of plants. Then we have a station for planting and learning and potting. This is our grow wall. So we have a grow wall with about 75 plants. And they're growing completely under um, IKEA track lighting. So they have no natural light at all and no specialty light. So, so that's just, just normal lighting that you'd... Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So they, they were... yeah, I don't know if you can see. It's just crappy, cheap lighting that was yeah, here from okay. IKEA. Yeah. So I experiment. This is the fourth grow wall I've done where I've put different types of plants to see how they do. It's been amazing yeah. to experiment. So, yeah, so the back of the room is a big kitchen, which is fantastic. So we've just got plants. You can kind of see the room. We've got plants everywhere. So it's a it's an indoor garden. How is the, the call? The Sarajevo. That's pretty cool. <laughs> Did you, oh, uh, you know, it was, it was a beautiful call. Um, I'll just say really quickly, these are dear friends 20 years on who were refugees to the U.S. out of the Bosnian War, a young couple. They have become like family to us, and they relocated back to Sarajevo. They're Bosnian Muslims, beautiful family. Tragically, her husband died last year. Uh, he was just oh. 46. So we went to Sarajevo to say goodbye, and, and he died very young of cancer. So she's just an amazing human being who's raising their son. Uh, she's just 43 years old and um, she's like family to us. So we check in every few weeks and keep up with them. And we were supposed to see them, she and her son in the U.S. in June. But of course, everybody's plans yeah. um, have been canceled. So 
uh, we'll catch up with them next year. But yeah, that's one of the most precious relationships we have from our years of uh, welcoming strangers and doing the work of refugee resettlement. And did you meet them in Lexington? Yep, yep, in the U.S. It's funny, Kentucky as a state, they resettle refugees in clusters. So the State Department, you know, so people can have community. And Kentucky ended up with, I don't know, 10 or 20,000 Bosnian refugees in the late 90s out of that Bosnian Serbo-Croatian war. So it's really lovely. There's lots of Bosnians. Kentucky's a small place. So we made some dear friends and learned to love the food, the culture, the coffee, uh, the good stuff. Yeah, that's incredible. I, I don't think that I would have pictured Kentucky as the the housing point for refugees or even Bosnian refugees, but that's really awesome, really. Yes, yes, it's it's very good. Ideally, refugees do really well in mid-sized cities. They're not overwhelming um, where there's community support to sponsor them. So while refugees do end up in places like Chicago and Los Angeles, really in the U.S., ideal places are those middle, middle-sized cities. And Australia is different just because we have just large urban areas. You know, we don't have hundreds and hundreds of, mm. you know, mid-sized cities. But the support here is, is good for refugees, not, not so much for asylum seekers, but very much for refugees. Interesting. We talked yesterday about placemaking and yes. about how urban and cityscapes aren't always the greatest place to for new people to arrive because there could be that sense of isolation and loneliness and things like that. Do you think that Australia has a part to play in harnessing the regional and rural centres we have and and really helping them grow through refugees? Yes, I think so. I mean, my opinion is very uninformed. I haven't been here long. But just from the case of the family that's currently on Christmas Island um, that were awaiting potential deportation, but they were settled quite well in a in a small rural Queensland town and the town loved them. They had adapted, they'd become integrated as a part of the community. And of course the town rallied when immigration, you know, arrested them and detained them. And I think they were an example of that very good marriage of newly located foreigners into smaller places um, where they can be knit in and they contribute economically. Um, of course, but also socially and culturally. So I think it's a wonderful idea and I hope it happens here. Yeah, I feel that way too because, you know, in cities that are already, it's isolated and you end up almost in your own little, you may not even need to learn English in some ways because you're in a community of people with the same language and then people see you as another and then you automatically uh, might feel much more safe and, and secure with the people that you are used to and that know, and it may just be language, group, religion, or whatever it might be. And then there's a division that starts to to build. And, you know, not sending 20,000 people into Bendigo, but we're talking families that are are going to settle and actually open up the minds of the people that are there at the moment. And then also really integrate into that culture the other way around and, and feel Australian and feel part of it all. Yeah, you're spot on because in my experience over many years, when I see moments of change happen in people, a a, a conversion, it's never an ideological discussion. It's with encounter. So when I would watch, you know, an American family welcome a family of Congolese people, it's through encounter that people are entirely changed in whatever views they might have had politically or socially or about immigration 
it doesn't happen on debate shows and in political discourse. It happens when one person encounters another person, no matter what issue you're talking about. When you become, when you come face to face, so beautiful what relationship does mm. um, to, to change your mind and to change the way you see the world. And I think that can happen really beautifully in smaller, small scale towns. Do you have a particular story or something that you recall of someone that might have been closed off to meeting a refugee or becoming part of the fabric of an area and, and seeing change grow or develop within someone, whether it was a refugee themselves or someone that was already living in a more closed place? I'm trying, I'm trying to think of a, a particular person. I, I certainly witnessed this in Lexington, the work we did with a resettlement agency was to, they would find churches to sponsor families. It's, it's a secular resettlement organization, but churches were often wonderful sponsors because they would provide funding for an apartment, for furniture, for assistance with driving, et cetera. And where I saw it was when a group of people were first-time sponsors, you know, they were reluctant, they didn't know what to think, and then we'd go to the airport and we'd wait for a family to come. And these are families that had been five or 10 years in refugee camps. So displaced for a long period of time and had very little. They'd come off the plane with a small bag between seven people. And um, it was in those that group of volunteers I would see, whether it was church or a civic organization, that they would just bond to the family and just give themselves over to love and assistance and after that, every year, they were willing to sponsor somebody. So I definitely saw it with groups. We had such a lovely, wide network of international people of all kinds, students, immigrants, refugees, that people were so open to the other. I rarely encountered anyone who was, was hostile or closed to the idea of having someone else join the community. Yeah, I joined up with uh, on Twitter for the first time uh, recently, I, I've been a part of it once upon a time and then deleted it all and, and now back for <laughs> moments of clarity. And I found Facebook and Twitter and, and a few other places, they're quite divisive and you get this, you can't, they can be quite divisive, I should say. And I found myself falling down the rabbit hole of seeing mm-hmm. things that were scary and, and this division. And, you know, uh, the, the thing on the weekend was um, Trump saying free Michigan, free Wisconsin, free all these places from... COVID uh, lockdowns, basically. People saying, you know, we're going to come up in arms to be able to have our liberties back, you know, protect the Second Amendment was basically what um, uh, Trump was saying on Twitter, you know, as the president. And (laughs) and then there was that. And then I thought, this is scary. This is terrifying that, you know, this can happen. But then I thought, I wonder if this is really as big as a lot on the the left. I mean, I'm on. I'm, I would consider myself left of center, definitely in my mm-hmm. views. But um, mm-hmm. sometimes I think on the extremities, you end up really building something that's maybe pretty minor or small up, and it it really brings fear and and division. And yes. I could have just been retweeting everything and being terrified. Instead, I you know wanted to find out the truth, and I did a bit more reading, or I reflected, or I meditated even just to get my mm. heart rate down because I was thinking, are we? up for a civil war or something or or what and then I realized we weren't so yeah it's social media has its part to play to connect people but it also causes that division have you noticed that as well or been trapped um, in that world yeah you know I um I'm not at all against social media but probably in the last three years I've stopped using it almost entirely for my own 
sense of well-being in my imagination. I think it's the most beautiful way people stay connected. And my family stays connected across the world through all these different, you know, Instagram, Facebook. I don't know. I don't know anything about Twitter, but except that President Trump uses it a lot. Um, but um, I, I have chosen, it was a very personal choice. Again, I don't, I don't worry necessarily about its toxic effects, or I think that it's bad for people to utilize it as an instrument. But for the reasons of what you experienced, you know, I thought, David, I'm really sensitive to violence and violent language. I'm really sensitive to conflict. And I thought, you know, I, I can frame my reality by things I'm reading that are very far from me, or my day can be shaped by the things that are about as far as my hand reaches. So, you know, I reach out my hand, my fingers go this far. This is where I can make an impact and a change. And, you know, we lived like that in our neighborhood. That was our sense of placemaking was very, very small. But, you know, this is as far as I reach. This is where I do good today. Um, the things within my reach. And so I feel that way about social media that, you know, I can't do anything about some of the tragic things that surface there. I don't want to be uninformed. So I do try to read the news, but even that I, I um, am very measured about reading the news because my heart breaks. I'm an American and, and there's devastating news in the U S. So, yeah. And what is good is by my day-to-day interactions it does end up framing my worldview with possibility, creativity, encounter, you know, with neighbors. I mean, just today I, I had to go out and get a, um, an appointment for a flu shot and I had to stop and buy some things from a new neighborhood store in the CBD because there's, no, there's not much food and not much for sale. And I had three different encounters with hyper-local neighbors, like within one block on this little 20-minute walk. And that was so beautiful. <laughs> um, you know, that was better for me than probably scrolling through the kind of things that are going on in Michigan. <laughs> mm. So, so yeah, I'm pretty, I have a pretty tight boundary for looking at, at stuff online. Yeah. Did you have to learn that your impact could only be within your arm's length? Did you have a time where you thought you could make maybe bigger change? Maybe when you're in your twenties and you started that shift to see what you could do that we spoke about, did you think maybe that you could make a much bigger change beyond your arm's reach at a moment. I mean, you've, you've definitely made a bigger change than just at arm's reach, but that was over time and with many different encounters rather than just one incident. So did you have to learn that? Yes. Yes, for sure. I mean, I was, I was as opinionated and activist and in my twenties and I really learned the hard way through, through heartbreak as we were working with refugees, I was really informed at the time, the, the conflict in Congo I mean, it's one of the most horrific in the 20th century, and it's carried on to the 21st century. It's one of the most violent, horrific human conflicts in in modern history. It's hideous. It's unthinkable. So as we had people coming, especially women who'd had atrocities committed against them, to our city to be resettled, I was trying to hold in tension this world news about this ongoing conflict. And then these people who were just trying to make a new life and it was killing me. It was devastating. I just, I, I, I guess I kind of had a, a, a faith collapse and I thought, you know what, all I can do is love this person in front of me and give them a ride next week to a job interview. And I can't do anything about what's happening in the Congo. That's way out of my reach. It doesn't mean I didn't care about it, but yes. And, you know, at some point, I don't know, We'd been married about five years and doing a lot of work in our neighborhood, but we had opportunities stretching beyond our neighborhood. And Jeff and I 
sat at our kitchen table and said, how do we make decisions? And it's a value-based discussion. Mm -hmm. How do we make decisions on what we value? And what we did was draw concentric circles that started at our kitchen table. Um, We were living in community with another couple and we had an infant. uh, We had a garden outside and we said, okay, whatever we do, let it start at this table. Let us be generous here inside our doors, inside our home with the people we live with, and then let the next ring of of this concentric circle be the immediate neighbors near us, that we would know them, that we would have energy to say hi and host people and become friends, and then the city we live in. And we let our concern be guided by those concentric circles. And, And every week we had to make decisions about what to do with our personal resources, our energy, our imagination, our time. And we'd come back to that and say, does it fit in our neighborhood? You know, do we have integrity in our house? Are, are, are we, you know, loving and generous within these walls? Are we loving and generous down the street? And then how can, in our city especially, and, and I learned about knowing your council members, people who represent you at a local city or, or district level, the best political action happens at a local level. So, that was a really helpful way for me to learn that reach of I go this far. And once I learned it, huge freedom came because I let go of the, the angst and the heartbreak of distant things. And then I just really acted as responsibly as I could within the place I lived. Mm. Um, and I guess that's a core ethic of, of placemaking is, you know, you give the nearest to you the best first. I know that. Jordan Peterson, the uh, psychologist who I, I know a bit about, I don't follow yeah. everything he talks about, but one of the yeah. the first areas he does talk about and discuss, and, he, and even with the archetypes and a bit of that talk about the hero's journey, mm. he goes into that a fair bit. But one area was you have to be able to make your bed and, you know, clean yeah. your room before you start worrying yeah. about what's happening next door. And yeah. if you can't manage your own life and the things happening around you, how do you expect to make change on a on a much broader level? And it sort of, I think that might be more of a um, pull your own socks up first before you're happy to help next door. And it might be more of a less love field way and just more a practical way. But you can talk look at it yeah. in both both, can't you? That what can I do? I I can notice that there's an elderly woman that walks to church every day, but she she and this is actually a true story. And every time I see her, I go out and, and have a chat and walk, you know, 50 meters with her just to have a chat. Um, not now because I don't want to go <laughs> near someone that could be vulnerable, but you know, that was happening and, I, and that felt great doing that. And that's just one little thing that doesn't need to be you're, you're writing a letter to someone or you're retweeting things yeah. to people, it's just helping that. So, I'd love to go into that placemaking a little bit more. You talked yeah. about those concentric circles of starting at your table the people that are in your immediacy being generous and loving there. And then once you've sort of achieved that for today or you've, you've spaced yourself in that foundation, you can start to spread and, and it probably becomes more and more easy to spread out a little bit further as you, Mm. you start making, uh, I guess, peace and love and and happiness a routine and and part of your life rather than struggling to reach it. So how can, just people listening to this that live in a street and they don't know any neighbours and they don't really know anyone down the shops. They don't know anything. They just go to work and come home and mm. like most people and, and I, you know, and there's nothing wrong with this. It's just I, I, I read the news. I wish I could help a few people, like, you know, give my $50 a year to charity and, and I worry about washing my car on the weekend because work takes it out of me. What can I do 
in that position to get the ball rolling to make a bit of a more of a difference in my immediate location. Yes, yes. Yeah, it's it's hard work because because of the state of hypermobility, we all, you know, most of us vacate our homes in the mornings and return in the evenings and have lives. I think Melbourne's no different than big cities in the US. People go across all kinds of postcodes to do all kinds of things. They might gather with friends in one place and shop in another and work in another. And so one of the things would be to carve out the time to be present. So the only way we ever made relationships was by being outside. Now it might sound weird to go, well, what in the world do I do outside? Well, do something you like. I mean, you know, you can read a book outside. We were gardening, which, you know, it was great. You're doing it outside along your fence. And inevitably within weeks, we were making friends just because people passed by and then there was something to share. So I think part of it is, um, and most people, I mean, now we're all forced to do it, which is fascinating because people are getting to know their neighbor in the, yeah. in the most beautiful ways, being concerned for, do you have enough food? Can I do something for you? But when times are normal and we can drive out of our places, I think it's a matter of contracting, of making a priority choice, which is again, values. You sit with your values and you rank what matters to you most. And then you base your choices on those week to week. If place matters, then you prioritize it with just sheer time, faffing about, not doing anything, sitting in the front yard or the backyard if it backs up to someone else and being outdoors. But we would always say to to people who'd visit and, and come and we had interns live with us and we'd say, just do something you love. You know, if it's woodworking or, um, I don't know, just anything you love, do it and, and try to be visible about it. And you'll find people who get drawn into to that way of connecting because people aren't stupid. They, I mean, artificial connecting feels really weird. <laughs> you know, when somebody knocks on your door and it used to be okay in America, yeah. at least to knock on the door and bring food by or bring cookies. Now people throw it away and say, oh, <laughs> I don't think I want to eat that. I have no idea what's in it. You know, so so not artificial uh, means of connecting, but I think just it, it's called bioavailability, like just time, just giving up time, which is more precious to people than money. So much mm. easier to write to to send some money to a charity than it is to say I'm going to put two hours to this every week, and I'm just going to, you know, be present to it. So I think what's cool right now is placemaking is happening to everybody to different degrees. Now, some mm. people literally cannot leave their place and they have no interaction. But a lot of people, my coworkers, one of them in one of the suburbs, people put their chairs out in front of their house now and they're safe distance away, but the kids play in the street. They say hi. They, you know, the teddy bear thing. Yeah. Just all really cool stuff. Yeah. Yeah, the rainbows and teddies in the windows and, and little gardens. And I saw a yeah. on Easter last weekend, three or four houses in a row had the music going and they're all in their own yard, but they're together yeah. and they've yeah. they've made an Easter egg hunt. So they, they had the kids, you know, running and finding the eggs across these four yards that, you know, the adults didn't leave the yard, but the kids could run through. Yeah. And that was amazing to see. I, I walked past with my dog and then had a chat, which I would never have spoken to these people. I was just walking the dog on that day and th- and then said, what's, what's happening here? And they said, oh, we've got the, yeah, this Easter egg hunt going. And, you know, what about you? And just asked about the dog and things that you just ignore. You put your head down or you just blinkers on and, and walk forward. 
these are neighbours that we're talking about and everyone's pretty friendly. I think the news with all its negativity and bad news and it's important to stay informed and the news does some great things to allow us to stay informed but I just have this sense that it actually makes us much more closed off than we need to be, that if the news was full of positivity and all the positive things, we'd actually maybe be more likely to just want to be outside and not put the walls up higher and the CCTV cameras in front of our doors, we'd actually be a bit more friendly. Uh, what, yes. Do you think that it's, well, I think it is, it's such a shame to have these massive homes with big, big walls and CCTV cameras and bars on the windows and all of this mm-hmm. stuff when in, in a place like Australia, which is fairly safe, but because there's fear in the hearts of people. Mm-hmm. There. It's not a bad thing. It's not I want to be above people. It's just I'm actually scared for my life or for my property. But is there that big of a risk? And you've been in some situations and, and places that people that would have been plonked into that position may have been been scared. But do you notice more love and kindness than fear and hate in people? Um, you know, I mean, I don't know if you're asking comparatively Australia to the US. Or just generally in life, yeah. Just generally in life. I mean, this is related, maybe not directly what you're asking, but as, as an American who lives here and has been married to an Australian for 20 years, what I relish and love about Australia um, that is so well established is a sense of common good and fairness. And that's established in systems, in you know local, state, and federal government. So in times like this of crisis where we have to band together and we, we need good, the systems are in place and there is a sense the sense of fairness in Australia is really, really, um, I don't think Australians can appreciate because they live with it. It's so profound that people would say, yeah, I want to make sure my neighbor has health insurance. So yeah, we're all in this together. You know, we, we'll, we'll do this system together. Even if I don't use it, I'll pay into something that everybody has enough for everybody. And of course that doesn't exist at all in, in the U.S. It doesn't mean people aren't good because Americans are beautiful and generous and creative and connected. But as far as political and civic systems, you know, those are, those are totally absent. But yeah, I think part of it is we don't question the assumptions we start with in a given day or in a period of our life. And if you start with the worldview that people are bad and not to be trusted until they prove otherwise, all your actions spring out of that place as opposed to looking on the world as a generous place filled with possibility that there's love and connection and people are inherently good. And I've been challenged by that because I moved such a starkly different place. So our CDV neighborhood has a million people every day. Well, normal times, a million people pass through from all over the world, from all different languages. So I had a sensory overload encountering a place where I didn't know anybody. The language was very different, people from all over the world, that it really challenged me to have to believe no matter where someone's from, human beings are fundamentally good. You know, it gets down to that. And I don't think we necessarily ask ourselves, but it comes out in times like this. Human beings are fundamentally good. You know, can I look into that face and, and trust that there is inherent goodness and sameness. You know, th- th- those are hard questions, but I think right now it's so beautiful in Australia to see people crossing every boundary there is, racial, religious, socioeconomic, streets, <laughs> boundaries, geographic, crossing over them to, to encounter each other. People are inherently good is 
something where you can base your values? Do you have to probably start at that step, don't you? You have to really bring your foundations back to that question to to start building your values from up. Mm-hmm. You probably want to start there, don't you? You want to say, are people good? Because then it makes a difference on where your actions lead. Will I help people that I might not agree with because they're bad people? But when you take away the monster aspect yeah. of how people, evil monster, this sort of talk and actions we start to realise that a lot of things are based on luck and circumstance rather than inherent goodness or badness. And and right. I think most people want goodness in their lives and to be yes. surrounded by that. Yes. So they must be inherently good themselves. Yes. So do you, yes. yeah, what was the value or the values that you started to to lift? Did you, did you believe that people were good or did you have to start work to believe that people were good? Uh, you know, I, I mean, I think I did. And, and I mean, that could be, I mean, it, you know, it would take forever to go back through the, the trails of, well, you know, did you have parents that loved you and cared mm. for you? Yes, I did. You know, I, I didn't, I didn't have a life of inordinate pain or tragedy or injustice, which I think are incredible things to overcome. And, and they're, they're, they're valid reasons people can't see the inherent goodness in someone else. Mm. I mean, it is when, if, if harm has been done to you, if you've suffered, if you have unresolved trauma. So I, you know, I haven't had any of that. And I had parents who demonstrated dignity and inherent goodness in all kinds of people, regardless of class and race and anything. And so I didn't, it didn't take me long as an adult to adopt those same ways of, of seeing the world. But part of it is, again, it's back to encounter. It's trusting encounter. You know, I love people. Since I was little, I've always loved people. And, and so, you know, you, you have that encounter. I guess it's subjectivity, isn't it? Like when someone goes from objectified, like what we do, the other, and, and we all in eras of history have the other, whoever that is, mm. um, the, the Germans, the Jews, the Nazis, the Muslims, the, you know, whoever, we always have these others that we vilify. At least, I mean, I'm speaking as an American um, and we vilify the Russians and the Chinese and the, yeah. you, know, you name it. Um, so when you can move from objectifying to the subjective, a person with a given story, again, everything changes. And so I think my ability to trust the goodness in other people is spending my life meeting all kinds of people from all over the world. And like I said, Aida, this, she's my best friend. She's a European Muslim woman. Like we're sisters, <laughs> you know, I'm Christian and she's Muslim and we couldn't be more bonded as family together. So it's that encounter and that, that takes away the ideology and the, the heat of an issue to just down to a person. And I just think fundamentally people are good. Do people do bad things? Absolutely. But, you know, grace and love are transformative, even in horrible situations. And I loved you said earlier in the conversation that uh, abundance, love was abundance, that it was unlimited yeah. or limitless. And yeah. and that yeah. to me was really, yeah, special because fear and hatred end up with destruction and, and you can't destroy forever. It has to end somewhere, but love can keep going. It doesn't actually consume as it as it um, grows. It actually it probably creates a lot more than consumes. So that's, that's the beauty yeah. of that, isn't it? Yes. Uh, I would love to... Um, ask about the status of asylum seekers and refugees in Australia now and especially at this time but you work closely with uh, a range of asylum seekers refugees people that are displaced or not really they're not citizens definitely but they're actually not even allowed to work in many cases so what what circumstances do people come 
when they arrive to Australia. A lot of people have never met anyone, have only seen boats being turned back at the mm. shore or whatever it might be and think that's an asylum seeker and, and it's the other again. But mm. you've formed friendships and seen that they're human and in many times not only more human but more generous than than anyone. Mm. Yes. But what are they actually dealing with when they arrive to Australia, a place that is egalitarian and fair but it's not actually transferred to them in many cases? That's right. And, and again, but my, my knowledge is, is limited. I'm on a really steep learning curve in these last few years as a new resident to Australia and comparing and contrasting the difference of what I know well in the U.S. Um, what is true and what is something that most people that I've spoken with, very informed and very thoughtful people, don't necessarily know the difference between a refugee and an asylum seeker and an immigrant. Mm. You know, those are very different things. A student can be an immigrant on a temporary study visa. Uh, there are working immigrants, people who come here and work. That's different entirely. A refugee is a person who's had to flee and cross a national boundary, flee their country across into another country because of persecution based on race, religion, or environmental calamity and disaster. So refugees are resettled by state and federal government. They are granted when they are, when a refugee is given status, they are promised basically residency on a track to citizenship. So that's the same in the US, that's the same in Australia. The government decides every year, oh, we'll take 10,000 refugees this year, we'll accept and they work with the United Nations. So if a refugee comes to Australia, they have been officially granted access and they have the promise of citizenship, okay? An asylum seeker is the same as a refugee in that they have fled their country because of persecution, same wars. There are people um, have come from the same parts of the world, same conflicts. The difference is a person seeking asylum has shown up on our borders or in our airports or to our country without invitation, a legal immigration invitation to say, come, we're going to resettle you, we'll provide you with resources and let you be a citizen. Over time, asylum seekers have suffered same, but they um, have shown up and basically requested asylum. Can I stay here safely until you approve my case? So does that make sense? Most people don't know the difference and group them all together. So what, and again, I'm very ignorant and new to Australia with the history of boats being stopped since 2014. So people that arrive by air are treated differently than people prior to 2014 that arrived by boat. And part of the problem is people have come here over the last 20 years, very valid humanitarian crisis needing a new home but because they've arrived by boat, they've been detained. So what Australia decided to do, and America does detention also on our borders, they've detained people for five and 10 and 15 years without due process. And so people are experiencing imprisonment of sorts without having committed a crime. Mm. So I know so little. There are the most brilliant and committed and dedicated people um, legal and um, social activists and people of faith who are working to advocate for asylum seekers. I'm just starting to learn from their work. But we have, Victoria, I think, has about 12,000 people seeking asylum. So what that means is these people have no promise of a future citizenship in Australia. And what happened more recently in the last few years, the Australian government removed any assistance in exchange for 
working rights. So most people also don't understand that they think a lot of people are here freeloading and getting support. They get medical care, they get housing, they get you know government support like Australian families do that have need. They do not. Those supports have been removed. They were limited and they're gone. And then people are given working rights, which is extraordinarily difficult if you don't speak the language or you're not literate in the first place. If you've come from a country where you had no literacy, mm-hmm. <laughs> how do you apply for a job? when you don't fully speak a language or you're not literate in it and or you have extraordinary trauma, rape, you've seen your family killed. So these are the kind of things people, once they know, and I have conversations with lots of people, there's a change in the way they see our immigration policy and our welcome and our values because Australians are extraordinarily fair, very fair. And when people understand to me, when they understand the issues, that fairness that sense of fairness returns and they say, oh yeah, these people are, they, they want to live safely. They want to work here. And the other thing I'll say, and this is just because there's a contingent out there that says, this is how terrorists come to countries. Mm. Not once, not once anywhere have, has a refugee be rens- has been resettled that has been a terrorist or then acted with terrorist acts. They're vetted so strongly. I'll tell you, they're probably about 35 million refugee or displaced people in the world, 1% get resettled. So that means 1% end up in a safe country. Mm. The rest of them are in camps, they're in yeah. places of conflict, and they're suffering. So they're, they're, not, they're not terrorists trying to mm. do harm to Australia. Does that help? That's a long answer. To <laughs> Oh, no, no, it's a, a brilliant answer. And I think going back to the difference between a refugee and asylum seeker, a lot of people say it's the skipping the line or, or it's the unfair way if you arrive by boat. But there's no choice in many cases. It's, it's not like oh. there's this line orderly. The UN have beautifully paved red carpets ready for you to stand in line. This is war-torn countries, political executions that are going to take place or all sorts of horrible things are going to happen if you don't flee. And refugees that get here in the the 10, 12,000 or whatever that are allowed to arrive and be settled in an orderly manner that the government like to continue to say, they have had to escape into another country and were an asylum seeker somewhere else. It's not like they were accepted, all right, there's a little place that Assad, the Assad regime in Syria is allowing these people that want to flee to stay and one day Australia yeah. will pick them up. We're talking you've got to flee very quickly and you arrive yes. to Turkey and then you travel across. You might get to Malaysia and, and eventually, you know, from a camp that you may stay, as you said, 5, 10, 15 years, not detained, but in a camp until yes. one of the, this 1% is able to actually be settled. Yes. So an asylum seeker you have to put yourself in the shoes of another that you might have to wait 20 years and still may not get settled. What do you do? Do you take the risk? Do you, and it was not even skipping the line. It's, it's many times it's like, I can't get to the border closest to me. I'm going to take this opportunity tonight because I know a raid is coming where they're going to take my passport and all my rights or, or whatever it might be. So this is my opportunity to, to flee with my family or on behalf of my family or whatever it might be. So yeah, this, the, the cases, I think anyone that has a view on a asylum seeker that hasn't met asylum yeah. seekers and hasn't seen yeah. the stories of asylum seekers, 
I just can't comment. It's, it's as simple as that. Yeah. And that might be seem ruthless, like it's a political decision. But just like climate change, if you're not a climate scientist, you probably shouldn't be commenting on what's going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> like, I that's mean, you can exactly. once you've read it, you know, you, you, if you're agreeing with the science, that's one thing. But the minute that you're just like, I'm going to take a political stance based on what matter, like what I think is right with, without the education or experience, yeah. it's just hard to fathom. But that's, that's how it works. So, yeah, that, that is interesting. So in Australia right now, I've seen the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre having to take yeah. in so much more donations at the moment because a lot of people that have given up their access to benefits also can't work at the moment. And yeah, that's at, right. homelessness rates are going to skyrocket and illness, mental illness rates are going to yes. go up and because there's unresolved trauma. So have you noticed, what, what are you doing or what are, what are you seeing as a part of that, your social enterprise and planted places, but also access to other charities and not-for-profits? Well, my, my experience is limited. In my time here, our um, work has directly partnered with BabCare. Yep. So um, BabCare has housing. They have a whole um, department or division of um, housing and homelessness. And then within that, they provide housing for asylum seekers. And it's a beautiful program called Sanctuary. Um, and I got connected through them a couple of years ago and have really appreciated and be grateful for my partnership with those caseworkers and their response to people that are vulnerable and at risk for homelessness. So, I mean, that is, again, that they're the most vulnerable people you can imagine because we have homeless Australians, but they speak the language. Their citizenship is not in question. It's an entirely different thing when you can be deported, you can be detained indefinitely by Australian law. Indefinitely, you can be detained. So there are hundreds and hundreds of asylum seekers at risk for homelessness. And BabCare's response has, they have two parts of their program. One are rooming houses where men, single, they're all just for men. They're uh, former like aged care facilities, or they almost look like a former hotel, motel mm. that BabCare owns and is provided. So these men live in small rooms you know, with a toilet and um, have common shared space. And there have about 80 people. And I've gotten to know them well and done gardening projects at their sites. And then the other response BabCare has is called Houses of Hope. And it's a beautiful uh, redemption of empty space. So if a church or a, um, has an apartment or a manse, um, you know, that's empty, over the last five years, um, churches have said, oh, yeah, well, we would love to host a family or a person or a single woman. Um, and so that's been a way they've housed families with young children and women. So in the building where I live, Collins Street Baptist Church has a house of hope. There's an apartment in our building that's dedicated to people seeking asylum. So we have two residents who live there and they have caseworkers they work with and we help with friendship and with material needs and we work in partnership. So there's dozens of those, which again, that's, that's only a small response, but it's, you know, so there are many organizations doing fantastic work, medical, clinical, like therapeutic, the Asylum Seeker Resource Center, the Red Cross. And so that care is the one I'm most familiar with because that's, that's how I've partnered with doing gardening and got to know people in that way. And it's fantastic. And we need more of that because it's, it's, I mean, there's just wait lists for people who need housing, who are sleeping on couches or sleeping on streets. Mm. So when we're looking at the placemaking, but also being able to 
touch people at arm's length and, and bring them into your lives and into your care or, or just, you know, have an influence upon, how can people do it in, in with either care-planted places or other areas that what can they do to lend a hand or assist? Is there something that you need to have to be able to do that or can anyone have a part to play? Yeah, well, I think anyone can have a part to play. There's a process which is very good with care, a process to become a volunteer. So, you know, for the safety of everybody involved, you know, they do background check and an application and a meeting with a caseworker. So, you know, here where I live and work, we have six or eight volunteers who've gone through that process and they're helping out with all kinds of families. So they're tutoring, they're helping drive families to appointments, they're helping with material needs. So BabCare, you know, I'm sure going online, um, BabCare Sanctuary Program, there's a way to apply to be a volunteer. It's a simple process. It's not burdensome, but it's necessary. Mm. Um, And, you know, I've had some people interested in volunteering here and our enterprise is tiny. And of course, right now, Nobody can do anything. But in the future, you know, I've had volunteers help with gardening projects. And in the future, we'll do some more projects that just the work of gardening. I need need Australian gardeners. I don't know how to garden in Australia, the Australian plants, you know, the native. Mm. I I love when, when Australian gardeners have helped teach me, you know, so in the future, you know, we, we, we love having people who can garden or want to learn about it and, and help out. Yeah, and I can almost see it that there's little um, offshoots or satellite areas yeah. where people can pick up plants and, and you know, yes. find that relationship because they've been able to pick up a plant from someone associated with what you've started. Yeah, yeah that's amazing. Yeah. You seem to be quite centred at the moment or, or and quite vibrant and 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 it really i mean we're through a screen but there's an energy you know there's an aura that that I, that i sense and feel just by talking to you and and looking through the screen do you have a practice of mindfulness of prayer of connections and relationships how do you keep that that balance and not get overwhelmed by the stimuli that's constantly at us Mm. Well, I, th- I think I've had to learn the hard way to know um, my own wellness. And so th- these times are actually great for me because I'm a pretty extreme introvert. Um, I'm quite a reclusive person. So, you know, slow, quiet days um, are really great. And I haven't, I haven't suffered nearly as much as people who have extensive connections, you know, broadly through work. And, but what I learned when the stress of moving and adapting to a new place and, and just some real difficulties all converged a few years ago, I learned that self-care is usually the last thing we arrive at. And it's actually the most important. It's, it's not selfish at all. And so I began to know myself well enough and I have just ironclad daily practices that I almost never negotiate on. And so I wake early because I love to wake early and I go to bed early and I rarely do anything at night or commit to anything in the evenings because I'm, I, I just, I don't think well. Um, and in waking early, I had, I have a, a couple of years of a meditation practice first thing immediately in prayer. And I do yoga. I've been committed to yoga for 20 years and I do it seven days a week. And so that's a physical embodiment um, and, you know, managing energy and, and stress and, um, and I exercise. So every single day I exercise either walk or run. So those are things I do with almost without fail in the early hours of the day. And before I even look at a phone or uh, email or anything. So before eight o'clock, I just mark out that time as 
as time of solitude and and I do those things. Um, and I've started writing in the last like five months, just every day. There's a great book called The Artist Way by Julia Cameron. It's a you know multi-million seller book that's been around for 20 or 30 years, but um, writing every day, putting pen to paper is really transformative at a micro level. You get something out, something comes down on the page and you get up from writing different. So that's been a fantastic thing to do. Yeah, but those things repeatedly um, have done a lot to keep me well, I think. I think it's so valuable, so important to not look at your phone until you, you've sort of completed that. And you said that that's, they're the non-negotiables. The other stuff won't be as productive if you haven't put those in place. And I think that is really important for people to realise that even the busy people, the extroverts, many times, because I consider myself one, have, haven't given ourselves the time to actually just be and 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 sit and and. I don't know if there's people that are born introverts and extroverts as much as as we think that maybe it's just the time that you've actually said, I can be with my own thoughts and with myself and in quiet mm. without uh, being scared of what's going to pop into our head and, and all yes. of that. Yeah. Yeah. And we've, uh, my, Jeff and I have, have started this practice of giving gifts to our future self. And so they're really simple things. But one thing is, untying our shoes when we get home we take our shoes off at the door and leave them and we're shoes off house like many of our international friends so we untie our shoes instead of kicking them off quickly so our future self has the gift of finding them untied and putting them back on but the other thing is we live in we live on level seven of our building and we've made a vow that if we're not carrying bags of groceries we take the stairs and sometimes it's really hard but I I'm at my best when I say, this is a gift to my future self. Like, I'm going to take the stairs. And so some days I take the stairs five times a day. Um, and so it's it's that kind of mindset that these habits now are gifting a future of a healthy self. So it's not easy, <laughs> but um, but that's helped me think of, of uh, caring for myself in the future. And with me, it always comes back to Seinfeld, the show when Jerry, <laughs> when Jerry says, um, when he's out at night and, and whatever, and he says, that's morning Jerry's problem, you know? So, so it's the opposite. Yes. It's do the opposite. Yes. <laughs> um, that's exactly right. Yeah, I, I, I love that. They live in the now, make the decision for now. It might not feel right, but the future self will thank you. And that's, that's brilliant. I, I absolutely yeah. love that. I'm just going to check if I've got anything else. Did you want to touch on anything else or no have we... no it's been so great it's been a beautiful conversation I've, I've enjoyed I've, it I've loved it I'm, I'm going to I'm going to contact you at some point and, and hopefully when this is all over you know do something to yes. help out but even to find out how I can um either bring bring something to you or, or to start something myself because oh, I don't know there's there's that that story you told yesterday just hit me so hard as if it was my story or, or what could be my story. You know, I've got a choice, two paths to take now. Do I take the easy sort of path that I can see the end of, that I've always pictured myself in this river, in like a little floaty or boat or tube, mm-hmm. and mm. I'm safe, but I'm just going to get to the end and that'll be it. And I know mm. what's happened and I haven't actually given myself time to step off that boat and explore and and visit and, and say hello. I'm just floating along and so I want to change that <laughs> and, Good. Yeah. and and the other part was that I've always said 
that I always have looked for an insurance policy against regret. I call it, you know, that mm-hmm. I don't want to. Uh, there's, I'm, I'm regretful. Do I not want to give up the opportunity to make that money or to to do that venture because I'll thank myself in the future when I can work less or whatever? Or is that just a spiral of constantly doing that versus the regret of not doing things when I'm 31, which I am now? You know, not not yeah. giving myself that time and chance to experience something completely different because I've from 21 to 31, 10 years. It's a lifetime <laughs> if you actually yeah. break it down. I mean, it's there's so much yes. that happens. So you can make something happen. So I'd love to yes. to to get into your brain a little bit about that. Yeah. You know, whenever at some point and yeah. have a chat, and hopefully we can meet one day. You know, over a coffee or something That's or right. a drink or yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I wanted to invite you sometime when it's free movement to come to the green room and see it in the city, come see this space. And if you don't have a plant, you will leave with one. I'm a terrible business person because anybody who visits, I just keep giving away plants. And, you know, I, I it's not part of a good business model just to give everything away, but I can't help it. Sherry, you've talked about your the greatest treasure that someone can have beyond all the gold and, and land and whatever is relationships. Mm. What have you learned and what can people do to, to ha- harness the beauty of relationships? What do we need to do more of in our lives and in our interactions with people? And maybe what are we sometimes wasting time on with relationships that, that you've noticed in your journey? Mm. Well, I, I, I think maybe it starts with, or it, it has to involve being open. Like we talked about earlier, the inherent goodness of another person. So it's, it's being open to an encounter, either something unexpected that even seems inconvenient that could become a friendship. So I think being open to encounter, and and I would, I would never advise people, you know, don't spend time on social media, but maybe equally try to balance in-person relationships, you know, that you have, whether it's the people you live with or the people that are nearby or, you know, the people you work with. Yeah. I think that's what people celebrate or regret on their deathbeds. It's never like work projects or awards or degrees. It's always either people they loved well or failed to love, you know? So I think relationships, when I'm with people, I, I'm, I'm not a teacher, an educator like you are, and, and we've had students come through the green room, and I'm, I'm not really great at, at sparking the imagination, but anytime I have a chance to influence family or friends or visitors, say, to the green room, I always want to um, remind people or maybe introduce for the first time that we're related to everything around us. So, so that, you know, relationships, what, what's happened in me is my sense of relationship started with humans, with people, and has expanded to include a very special dog, include plants and in soil organisms and worms. When I was an urban farmer, my relationship web got really big and wide. Chickens, bees, grubs, worms, you know, my neighbors, and I could see all of it as connected. And so I began to know that my well-being wasn't just about the people I loved or cared for or received goodness from, but also my relationship to, to the created world, to animals, which I just adore and I miss, um, and then to plants and to soil life. So I, I think what I would say is just look around the world and see that it's alive um, and full of relationship. It's full of living things that we can be connected to. So I think some people feel really connected to trees 
that sounds crazy, but Melbourne lets you email a tree. Trees are so beautiful to relate to a tree. That's not crazy. That might sound hair-brained. It's not crazy. Um, so I think that's what I would say is invest in precious time with people, but also see the world through levels and layers of, of creation that plants and gardens and soil and dogs and cats and um, creatures and birds and everything is a part of how we relate and be well as people. My last question is one I always ask, which is the name of this podcast, which is Moments of Clarity. So have you had a moment of clarity either through this conversation or recently that you'd like to share? Yeah, you know, I I haven't had very many in the last few weeks, but the last moment of clarity I had was was in New Zealand. I went on my own. I've never been. And I took a trip um, in very early March to New Zealand. It was a beautiful time. This is my 50th year. So I thought I'm going to treat myself, go on a trip, see a beautiful country and have a time of reflection. And nothing came to me. So I just relaxed and walked and read and saw some beautiful things in New Zealand. But the morning I was leaving, I was having a coffee at a local uh, cafe. And it was a moment of clarity. I just realized I need to take responsibility for myself. And I felt this huge sense of freedom that, that either blame or longing that was placed outside of myself for like, well, I wish that would work out. And if that person were just a little bit different, you know, I could do better in my job or in my marriage. And I just had this voice say, take responsibility for yourself. And it was the clearest thing. I went back to my hotel and actually wrote it down. You know, I did a page that I just reread last week and reminded myself that my day and my tasks start in a myriad of ways of taking responsibility for myself. Um, And I felt differently since that moment of clarity. So I've been grateful for it. Thank you. Thanks for sharing. It's it's been brilliant. Before I let you go, is there ways that people can either contact you or or get involved with Planted Places or BAPTCARE or anywhere? What would you suggest they do? Well, I definitely, um, BabCare, and, you know, I'm sure just searching BabCare Sanctuary, you can look online and find the ways to apply to be volunteer when life resumes. Follow that up for sure, because there's an enormous amount of need across all of Melbourne. So, you know, talking about placemaking, you can find something locally, ways to help a family or an individual through BabCare. And Planted Places, um, I think our I think our website is plantedplaces.org. So, you know, I'm not good at Instagram, so we just have a, a very simple website. But my I think my information's there and I'm happy to be contacted. Um, I love visitors. People are welcome to come and learn about plants. And if if I get my act together in six months, maybe we'll do workshops, things like that. You know, yeah. people can come into the green room and learn, uh, join in. So yeah, I'd, I'd welcome anybody to be in touch. And a call out to Australian Gardens as well, for sure. Oh, yes. Uh, just quickly, just to touch on this, if you're someone that isn't religious but you want to be involved in something like BAPCARE, is that something that as long as you're open to religion that you'd be welcomed in or is it something that you have to... Oh. Because this is something that I know from so many people that look at a lot of the volunteer and charity groups that end up being associated with a religious organisation and it and, and might put fear into someone to say, oh, I don't know much about that or I'm not that religion. Are these organisations usually quite welcoming and accepting and actually willing to bring in 
the fold? Is that how they work? Uh, absolutely. And that's a great question because a point of clarity, um, BAPCARE is a, is a non-for-profit that works in, in housing and homelessness and aged care facilities. It's not a religious entity at all. It has roots you know, faith-based roots, but that's, there's no discrimination. You know, the caseworkers aren't necessarily people of any kind of faith at all. So anyone can be involved in that work. And I'm sure it's the same for Catholic agencies and, and lots of, and, and planted places is a, even though I'm associated, I work for Collins Street Baptist Church and live here and planted places is, is a, not a faith organization. It's a, I told you that a DGR, you know, so we're a, we're a not-for-profit and have no religious affiliation. You know, I am connected to a body of faith and, and I'm inspired by values of faith, but it's not, there's, it's not religiously motivated and, and we don't define our work at all, planted places as a, as a, a faith base. So, you know, like I said, some of my good friends are Muslim and Jewish and so yes, all are welcome for sure. Right. No, I just wanted to, to clarify that because yes. I know that it wasn't until I started asking around that I'd actually had an answer like that to say I'm, I am welcome as someone that I'm, I'm Catholic, yeah. brought up Catholic, but probably wouldn't define myself as such at the moment. So, but who knows, everything's changing yes. all the time. So, um, <laughs> no, I really appreciate the conversation over two sittings. <laughs> and, That's good. And I've, I've been thrilled and, and it's been really beautiful. So thank you. Thank you, Matt. Lovely. Thanks so much. If you enjoyed the conversation today, please subscribe, share with your friends and family, and leave a review. If you would like to contact me, provide feedback, or have access to someone you believe could be a great guest on the podcast, you can contact me on Twitter or Facebook at Moments of Clarity Podcast, or on Twitter at BarneyMOC. You can also email me on momentsofclaritypodcast at gmail.com. My name is Barney, and thank you for joining me on Moments of Clarity.